Father, thank you for another beautiful day in western Colorado. The sunrise this morning is spectacular. The, the cooling of fall coming on us, the voices of fellowship, the smiles of new believers, the celebration of baptism. Father, thank you. Father, we have your word open in front of us. We ask that you bless this time that we have together, that you speak to us. We are seeking your voice. We are seeking your wisdom. We would uh, like to have more of you in this world and less of us. So please, to that end, open our hearts and open our minds as we have your word open in front of us. Amen. We are in John chapter 6, and we are in verses 22 through 36. We're continuing our, our theme in faith. With this, we want, um, you know, last week we talked about um, testing our faith. And what we talked about was testing ourselves. But remember the standard, the standard that God uses is what is in our hearts. We talk about the trappings of religion, the trappings of what we do. And all of those things should be an expression of what is in our hearts, of what is truly in our hearts. We're in John chapter 6, verses 22 through 36. It says, The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus or his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said, Always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that... Oh, sorry. Now there's, that's our passage. Man, I'm jumping ahead. When we read this, remember where we are. We're, we're going to jump into our, our history portion briefly. So we just got out of the feeding of the 5,000. We talked about it last week. Um, Luke from Young Life also talked about the feeding of 5,000, which was absolutely fantastic. So what has happened is they're, you know, they've gone over to the, the west side. I've, I've got a couple of pictures to put up here so that we can see what this is like. So this is this hilly country over on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. If we can go to the, the next picture, it gives us a, a great picture of, of what this country is like. It's a lot like around here when we look around. You can see you know, the Sea of Galilee. You can see the, the hills as it goes up to the Golan Heights and off to Syria and Damascus in the distance. 
at the end of chapter 5, remember the, the, the Jesus and the disciples had gone down to Jerusalem. They'd gone there for a festival. The result of that, remember Jesus healed the paralyzed man, but the result was that the Pharisees had resolved to kill Jesus. They go back home. They go back to Capernaum. And during that time, John the Baptist is killed. He's been beheaded by the king. And the disciples have gone out on their very first missionary journey. They've gone out and, and spoken. They have come back, and they're gathering back together. And now it seems to be kind of a, a time of mourning where Jesus is seeking separation. He wants to get away from the crowds. He wants some time alone. And that doesn't happen. They go over to this west side, to this rural area, and the crowds follow them. They actually walk along the shores there in the boats and follow them to this place. Remember, when we talked about in chapter 5, and it doesn't really matter, it's nothing that, that you know, sets the world on fire, but if, you know, if, if it was a Passover, so it's Passover to Passover, it's been a year since they were in Jerusalem. If it was the Feast of Tabernacles to um, Passover, then it was between five and six months, depending on what year you believe this was. So again, Jesus and the disciples are back in the north region of Galilee, and they're working out of their home base at Capernaum. The disciples have come back. John the Baptist has been killed. And they leave the Capernaum. They leave the cities. They go to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. John tells us that. And they go out to this farm country, to this rural farm in the hills at the base of the Golan Heights. One of the things we always want to take away from that is remember that these are real places. This is a biographical account of real events. It's not a fictional story. It's not a, a parable. This is a real account of events that actually happened. This crowd that follows them, and it says that there are 5,000 men plus women and children. And Jesus relents, and he starts healing and teaching. And in the afternoon is when we have the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeds them in that miracle. And then after that, after the miracle feeding of the 5,000, Jesus retreats to be by himself. He sends the disciples in the boats. He says, you guys get in the boats. Go back to Capernaum. I'm going to stay here for a little while. So they get out into the water, and then a fierce storm comes up. If we read this account in the other Gospels, they've been rowing for, it says, the third watch. So they've been rowing for five or six hours in this boat against this wind, and they've only gone three or four miles. They had to be pretty worn out. And in the middle of the storm, in the middle of that wind, in the middle of all of that, as they've been rowing and rowing and rowing, Jesus comes walking out to them on the water. And the disciples are afraid. They think it's a ghost. They're like, oh my gosh. Is this really it? Is this the end? And then Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid, it's me. And they immediately, John says, they immediately invite them into the, in him into the boat. He gets in the boat with them, and immediately they reach the shore. And in the morning, the people of the crowd, they look for Jesus. They go to the shoreline. They know that Jesus stayed behind and the disciples have left. And they're looking for Jesus. Remember it says in verse 15, they want to make him king by force if they have to. Some boats arrive from Tiberias, and the crowd realize that Jesus has left also. And some of the folks from this crowd return to Capernaum, and there they find Jesus teaching in the synagogue. That's in verse 59. Remember that our theme is faith, and that we are pulling out not only our faith, but examples of faith from the Bible. And we are looking at true and false believers, and we've examined the responsibilities and the rituals of being a Christian. We've talked about prayer and baptism. We've talked about communion. We've talked about studying the word and being on mission, spreading the gospel. But the ultimate test 
is what Jesus says about what is in your heart. Because if there's a passage in the Bible that we should read, it's all of them, but this is an important one. Because these people are relentlessly pursuing Jesus. If there's something that we should model our behavior after, it's this. These folks were on their way down to Jerusalem, and they left their pilgrimage um, that they were headed to Jerusalem, and they went out into the rural country. They were recklessly pursuing Jesus. If there's a good thing to do, I would say, that's it. If you were saying, man, you know, how do, I, how do I do this Christian thing? Well, recklessly, relentlessly pursuing Jesus, I would say, is a pretty darn good thing. Jesus says, I know what's in your heart. And it ain't it. You missed it. And he ends up walking away from them. That's a hard lesson for us. Because, like I say, it should be a good thing. Shouldn't we be welcoming these folks with open arms? Really, shouldn't this be the Great Awakening? Shouldn't be this the first megachurch? Could you imagine a church with 5,000 families who are willing to leave everything and row across a lake for Jesus? You kind of want to ask him, man, what's the problem? Megachurch, baby. Private jets. Mary could have had a Lamborghini. We could have had satellite campuses throughout the region. That should shake us to the core. Make us pause and examine ourselves like we did a couple of weeks ago. These folks that he walks away from, he knows what is in their hearts, and it isn't what he is looking for. So they catch up with him in the synagogue in Capernaum. So listen to the exchange. They say, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Notice how he answers them. He doesn't tell them how he got there. He says, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Then he says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they asked him, it's a logical question. What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus walked on the water in the middle of the night, and they asked him, Rabbi, teacher, when did you get here? The first lesson, the first thing that comes out of that, is to believe that God is God, and that Jesus is Jesus. These folks, we're going to use the word they. When I was writing this outline, I don't know, there's got to be like a hundred they's I have written in this thing. I got sick and tired of writing it. But that's what they're called they. John uses also the word disciples to describe the crowd, which is to say that that term is a general term for people who are seeking after their students or their followers, but they're not genuine believers. These folks ate the bread and the fish. They listened to Jesus speak. They saw the healing. They ate their fill of the bread. Yet, they cannot comprehend how the king of the universe moved from one side of the lake to the northeast side of the lake. We do this, though. We like to put God in little boxes. Like, yeah, I, I believe you fed the 5,000. I believe, you know, you walked on the water. But you surely can't be in this situation. You can't help me now. You're not interested in my career. You're not interested in my family. Right? God's over there. They can't make the leap from, yes, the same God that brought the bread, the same God that did all the healing, the same God that did all the teaching, can go from one place to another. 
their belief in the supernatural stopped. It just got out of their comprehension. They're like, oh, well, of course, you know, Jesus can only walk, right? God certainly can't be in my life at the same time that he's out there doing all of these amazing things. He's limited. We know that he's not, but we put that into our heads and we're going to see that these blocks in their minds continue, that they're not willing to make leaps, they're not willing to take down barriers in their own minds. So our heads know God is God and Jesus is Jesus. We just read about Jesus healing a paralyzed man. We just read about the feeding of the 5,000. We just read about healing. But our minds immediately revert to our understanding of the world and how the world works as the default in our heads. That's the theme for today, and it's going to get personal. Jesus throws a flag on the field. They ask, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus responds, I know what is in your heart. I know why you are here. I know what you want. You ate your fill of the loaves. John Piper says, they want Jesus because he is useful to them. It's like having Superman on your team. Whatever the sport, if you could have Superman on your team, your odds of winning increase greatly. Football? Superman is the quarterback, the running back, and the wide receiver. We score on every single play. Jesus is useful to these folks. Now, with Jesus on our team, we can win in whatever we want to do. Are we hungry? Jesus fetches some of that bread and fish. Are we hurt? Jesus heal up the troops. He is useful to them. Also notice that Jesus doesn't ignore them or reject them but he also does not accept their unbelief. Instead, he plainly tells them what is in their hearts. Then, he calls a reverse. See, God speaks to each of us in a way that we can understand. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what is in our hearts. He knows our sin. He knows our secret sin. He speaks to us in a way that is meaningful to us, and he does this to the crowd. He says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus is like, Hey, Phil, this is right up your alley. Don't work for that food. Work for this food. All right, tell me what to do. Give me the list. I can do it. What do I got to do? What do I have to do to earn this bread, this eternal bread that you're offering up? Tell me what it is. What's the chore? Where do I got to be? When do I got to be there? When do I start? And then he turns it and he says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Wait, what? No, no, you're supposed to give me a list. You were supposed to tell me what to do. And instead he says, no, man, you got to believe. It's about relationship. It's about believing. It's about eating of the bread. It's not about you earning it. You can't earn it, in fact. It's one of the toughest things when we, when we wrestle with this. It's so extremely simple to say, just believe. Just accept Jesus in your hearts. We just, little girls last week, just starting on their faith journey, saying, I believe in Jesus. I take him as my Lord and Savior. And they got the rest of their lives. They got to figure out what that means. They got to spend their time committed to this relationship with Christ. It's so simple to say, I believe. I take Jesus as my Lord and Savior. He is my bread. He is my Lord. 
And it's so hard to then put the things of the world away, to actually do that, to try to not earn our salvation. Because we want works. We want something that we can count, at least I do. It says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Food from the world spoils, and we know this. We live it. I think every single one of us has opened a Tupperware or come home to a gallon of milk that was left on the counter to discover it has spoiled. Right? We suffer the loss of the food, the loss of the meal or the scramble for a substitute when you thought you knew what you were going to fix. We suffer the loss of money. And I don't care who you are, groceries aren't cheap. After the bills are paid, you still have to put food on the table. A spoiled meal hurts in the heart and the wallet especially when it's caused by carelessness. How much time have you spent working to put food on the table, worrying about paying the bills, worrying about the future, about how you are going to make it? So what would it change in your life if you never had to worry about feeding your family again? If you never, if you knew there would always be food in the pantry? Would that lessen the worry about work, about bills, about relationships? Jesus says, stop working for food that spoils. Start working for food that is eternal. Jesus says, stop. Start putting your savings into the eternal 401k, the eternal IRA, not the one that lost 15% due to inflation in the last six months. And then he says, you can't earn your way into heaven. There is no work for you to do. Instead, he says, eat. He says, I am hungry, therefore I eat. You are hungry. It is dinner time. You walk into the kitchen. There are two kinds of bread on the counter. One is Jesus' bread. The other is world bread. Which one are you going to choose to eat? The obvious answer is Jesus' bread. Spurgeon says this. He says, think of his calling himself bread. How condescending that the most common article upon the table should be the fullest type of Christ. Think of his calling our faith and eating and a drinking of himself. Nothing could be more instructive. At the same time, nothing could be better could better set forth his gentleness and humility of spirit that he does not object to speak thus of our receiving him. God be thanked for the simplicity of the gospel. The longer I live, the more I bless God that we have not received a classical gospel or a mathematical gospel or a metaphysical gospel. It is not a gospel confined to scholars and men of genius, but a poor man's gospel, a plowman's gospel, for that is the kind of gospel which we can live upon and die upon. It is to us not the luxury of refinement, but the staple food of deep problems when we are lying upon the verge of eternity, weak in body and tempted in mind. At such times, we magnify the blessed simplicity of the gospel. Jesus in the flesh, made manifest, becomes our soul's bread. Jesus bleeding on the cross, a substitute for sinners, is our soul's drink. This is the gospel for babes, and strong men need no more. So think about your day. You get up in the morning. You take a shower. I am washed by the water, made clean by the blood of Christ. You get dressed. I am clothed, covered by the blood of Christ. Go back to Genesis. God fashioned the first clothes out of animal skins. Maybe you guys start your day with coffee. 
my day does not start without coffee. Or maybe I drink a glass of water. Christ is the living water. Right? Get your breakfast, whether it's toast or cereal, fruit or juice. Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the lamb sacrificed for me. The gospel literally surrounds you in your every day. It is right there speaking to you in every moment from the time you go to sleep to the time you wake up. It's right there pouring itself out for you. Go to Matthew chapter 13. I was just thinking about, thinking about the bread. We did this a couple of weeks ago when we read about the chaff and the wheat and the, the wheat and the tares, the seed that fell on the path, the seed that fell among the weeds, the seed that fell on hard ground, and the seed that fell on good soil. We also read the, the fruits of the Spirit. We read the Bible maybe in the morning. Jesus is the Word. If we flip to, to John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isn't that incredible? May we pray in our morning. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But do you see how the gospel is in your every day, in your every moment of every day? Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the word. I am right here with you in every single step. Psalm 3 says this. It says, But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. So take comfort. Take refuge in the blanket that is the gospel in your everyday. Jesus intentionally illustrated using our everyday that we could hear the good news about him in every moment. We are surrounded by the good news of Christ. And I hope you can see it and hear it more and more each day. No one in John 6 earned the Jesus bread. The people came, they sat down, and they were fed. Remember that no one had to do any work to get that bread. The crop was already harvested, the wheat was already ground, the flour was already made, everything was already mixed, everything was already baked. No one had to do any work to receive that bread. All they had to do was just take out of the basket and eat their fill. They didn't have to have a pledge of allegiance or take an oath or say any words. No, they passed the baskets, they took some, and they ate. They didn't receive an invitation they didn't get to go because they were in a special place or because they had done certain things or because they had a certain position or a rank. They weren't separated because they were baptized or unbaptized. They didn't have to pass a, a new members class or go to confession. They didn't have to go out in the fields and build or serve or plant or sow or reap. Instead, we followed Jesus to the hills. He taught and healed for a while. It was getting to be afternoon. Jesus took a, a basket of bread and fish. He blessed it. He passed it out. And when it came to my group, I grabbed some. I got some bread. I got some fish. And I ate it. And I was full. You don't earn the bread. You receive the bread. It was given to you freely by Christ. So, we won't go there. Maybe next week. I don't know. There's a big deal. We could, we could go way off the rails talking about 
earning grace, earning salvation, the works that are required, the belief that's required, in comparison to God's sovereignty. The rule I will give you for this comes from David Platt. That is simply that God is sovereign, God is in control, but man is also responsible. That's the simplest way to put it. Because we can get way off into the weeds about God's desired will versus his ordained will. We can get way out there talking about this. Because, right, belief, right, well, if I have to believe, isn't that technically a work? Isn't that technically, aren't I taking an action? Aren't you saying that, that that won't get there? Well, then you get into some things about God's work in your heart, about what God can do in a, in a person. And we could go over to Micah and we could go to Joshua and some places there to talk about that. But I don't want to get lost there. I want you guys to just put two things there. Number one is this, that right, God is sovereign, God is in control, but man is responsible. So put that there in your heart and your rules. Next thing I want you to put there is about prayer. You can pray that God will soften people's hearts. And God will do it. God will open doors. He will soften hearts to lead people back to him. So when you're talking about your prayer, when you're talking about people that are lost, when we're talking about mission, when we're talking about bringing people to Christ, that is an effective prayer. Pray to God for him to soften hearts. Because he does. He leads people back to himself. He opens those doors. Right, we, we talked about this uh, probably a month or so ago, about us being dead in our transgressions, being dead in our sins. And that's very true. Without the work of God, we're just a dead thing. So it takes God to kickstart the engine, and that's what we can pray for. We can pray for God and whoever it is and everyone. Maybe you're concerned about Afghanistan. Maybe you're concerned about our leaders. Maybe you're concerned about Thailand and Myanmar. Maybe you're concerned about the people in Haiti. Pray for God to soften those hearts and to lead them back to him. So when we eat and we drink, what happens? The food and the water goes into your stomach where it is broken down and digested. Then the vitamins and the minerals and the proteins and the carbohydrates, they're carried throughout your body, nourishing the cells and the organs. Christ has to penetrate your very cells, work his way through your whole body. His love and grace rest on your heart. His words fill your memory and occupy your thoughts. His warmth and comfort spread like a cup of hot chocolate when you sit by the fire after being out in the snow. He is the coffee in the morning that fills the house with the aroma of getting up and getting the day started. Is that how you think of Christ? Or... Is Christianity a thing that you do, like going camping or bowling or fishing? Are you a Christian, like maybe you're a volleyball player or a nurse? Is being a, a Christian something you do for a couple of hours on most Sundays? Or is your heart filled with the love of Christ? Is your mind full of the words of Christ? Are your legs and arms moved to do the work of Christ? I put this in your bulletins, though, the whole bulletin is the lorica or the breastplate of St. Patrick. These are good words. I, I, I kind of chopped it up because these are those parts that, that speak to me, but this is a good thing to, to put to get this mindset of Christ in all 
He says, I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak to me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's host to secure me against snares of devils, against temptations of vices, against inclinations of nature, against everyone who shall wish me ill, afar and anear, alone and in a crowd. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Come and eat. I am the living water. Come and drink. So buckle your seatbelts. Sorry, it's going to get a little uncomfortable. Good for me anyway. So you've had a day. Maybe a hard day at work. Maybe a decent day at work. You come home. It's time to relax. Where is your comfort? Where is your relaxation? Is it in a beer or a glass of wine or a cocktail? Is it in a bowl of ice cream or a sweet treat? Is it in a good book and a warm blanket? Or do you rest in Jesus? Or do you rest in worldly comforts? When you dream, what do you dream of? Is it dreams of, of trips or sandy beaches or historic sites? Or is it dreams of walking with Jesus in eternity? The measuring stick is what is in your heart. Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, they said, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They are standing face to face with Jesus. They ate the bread and the fish. They have no idea how Jesus beat them back to Capernaum. They have heard him speak. They have seen him heal. On the face, it seems ridiculous for them to ask for a sign, to ask Jesus to perform a trick or give them a show of power to prove he is the Messiah. Jesus answers this in Matthew chapter 12 when they do the same thing. The Pharisees, the teachers, the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation, condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. And it's easy to scoff or to get mad at the crowd here. We list off, I just did, what they have received from Jesus. And in the face of that, their unbelief, it's silly. It's a farce. It is the illogical choice. Because they make the connection. They make the connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and the manna from heaven in, in Exodus. Jesus corrects their theology. He tells them, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread. It was God who gave you the bread. 
John Piper uses this analogy. I don't know if I like it or not, but it's a good one. He says that this miracle, it's a lot like, you know, have you guys ever walked into your living room or maybe into your bedroom and you had a ray of warm sunshine coming in and you have that spot of sunshine? Maybe you can go sit or you can lay down there and you feel the warmth. Good place to close your eyes or rest for a minute. Right? You enjoy the warmth. You enjoy the rest. But don't look up. Don't follow the beam back up to the source, back to the sun. Right? That, that giant fusion hydrogen reactor that is casting its energy and its warmth down to you. That's what this is like. They're sitting there enjoying that patch of sunshine, but they won't look up and see where it comes from. They won't look at the source. That's what it's like. There is no logic in their words. Yesterday, they wanted to make Jesus king. They heard the words, they saw the healing, they ate the food. Jesus says, all that stuff you received was from my Father in heaven. I am the Messiah, the bread, the water. I am what you have been waiting for for so long. That's not what they wanted. They wanted a prophet, a a good man, a powerful man, a leader, a king, but not a personal savior who was calling them to repent and be saved. And they are so desperate to hang on to their fragile little world, to their logic, to their critical thinking, that all of that stuff, it goes out the window. You have to ask yourself, does Jesus ask me to do anything bad or unreasonable? Does he? Does he ask you to do anything bad or unreasonable? Go to Galatians 5. It says, The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Anybody disagree with that? Anybody think, man, Jesus, you're, you know, you're way off. Anybody look at that through the standards of, of morals and say, man, you're, you're going the wrong direction. Go to Exodus chapter 20. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on the earth, beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who uses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you, nor your son, or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so, that may live, so you may live long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Bad rules? 
You tell them, asking me to do something way out there, asking you to do something ridiculous, asking you to do something that, man, traps your conscience somehow. Ephesians chapter five says that among you must there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Anything in there about marrying seven-year-old girls? Multiple wives owning other people? Well, in Matthew chapter 22, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Yet, the accusation still hangs, doesn't it? Racist, sexist, hateful, repressive, etc., etc. Where do you see that? Anyone? Anyone see that anywhere in there in what Jesus asks you to do and what Jesus asks you to, to follow through with? Anyone? But that's the accusation. Ate the bread, ate the fish, saw the healing, heard the teaching. What do they want? They want useful. They want, they want to enjoy the patch of sunshine, not look up at the source. So what's the excuse? Well, in comparison to Muhammad, who commands a holy war, an intifatade against the infidel, an eternal war until the entire world is either dead or Muslim. There is no logic or truth to the accusation. If you just read the Bible, if you go to Matthew chapter 5, if you turn your book and read the Sermon on the Mount, it said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We do this all the time. Well, they passed an anti-abortion law, so I won't be a Christian. This church closed during the lockdown, so I won't be a Christian. This church stayed open during the lockdown, so I won't be a Christian. Well, Christians teach that God created the world. My science teacher says it was an accident we involved, so I won't be a Christian. A hurricane happened, so I won't be a Christian. An earthquake happened, so I won't be a Christian. FYI, it doesn't ever say in the Bible that there won't be natural disasters. In fact, in Romans 8, it says, And consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
that hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The title of that is Present Suffering in Future Glory. The thing is that, you know, I want to drink, I want to smoke weed, I want to watch porn, I want to have promiscuous sex, so I won't be a Christian. And to justify my behavior, I will tell myself and everyone else that my behavior is good, natural behavior, and that anyone who says different is evil. Jesus sums them up nicely. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. That's the world. They've seen him. They've ate the bread. They've ate the fish. They've heard the words. And yet they still do not believe. No one is going to stand before the throne of God and look God in the eye and say, hey man, you never told me. Hey man, you didn't show me. You weren't there. No one's going to do that. At the end, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They either ate and drank of Christ or they didn't. We either eat and drink of Christ or we don't. The plea is that we eat. So our last point is about satisfaction. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So I was thinking about this, how to illustrate this. I have another really poor illustration, I'm sorry. I have a, I have a unique problem. I travel quite a bit for work. And uh, the problem is, it's going out to eat. Because my wife is a really excellent cook, and i not just saying that. She really is a really excellent cook, and she always has been. She has always been an excellent cook. She has always ran our house well. So going out to eat, right, it's, it's kind of nice, especially when you get to sit down with friends or a family or enjoy time together. It's, it's really kind of nice. It's nice to go out to a fancy dinner for a special occasion. But quite frankly, it's really hard for me to be excited about the food. I'm more than satisfied by the food that I already have, by the food that my wife makes at home. It's really good stuff. I don't sit around and long for food from a restaurant. I don't dream about a meal from someplace, even exotic places. My, my favorite meals were at home. That, that isn't a criticism. It's an illustration of being satisfied in Christ. I don't lust after something else. You know, lust after the job or the promotion. That doesn't mean we stop working. It means we stop working for worldly gain. Remember the very first thing. Christ has a basket for you here on earth and in heaven. Be satisfied. Let go of the lusting after a life of ease. Even retirement isn't the last chapter of your life. It's the second to last chapter of your life. Be satisfied. Do what you can in sharing the gospel. Look forward to the last chapter, to being with Christ. Even in our religion. I love this song. It's, you know, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. You guys know that? But when you are satisfied in Christ, you are not counting on rites and rituals for salvation. You guys ever 
talked to somebody and said, hey, you know, do you go to church? Have you, you know, have you ever gone? And their response is, well, I was baptized when I was like 12 or 13. That's their response. And you're like, okay. But no one who is satisfied in Christ says, well, it's like 90% Christ and 10% baptism. It's like 90% Christ and then I have communion. We understand when we're full, when we're satisfied in Christ, that the rites and the rituals are an expression of our faith. Not something that we're counting on for salvation. See, immediately when I say that, we know that the cart and the horse are backwards. I have Christ as my Lord and my Savior. He is my rock and my redeemer. Could you pass the holy water? I need to bl- No. Our hope, our trust, and our satisfaction is in Jesus. So we're going to close with, uh, with Psalm 23. And it's just an expression of this, of being full of Christ. It's just an expression of having eaten of Christ and being satisfied. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. Father, thank you for Jesus giving us this this sermon on the bread. Thank you that we get to sit together and, and pour through this and try and work it out to the best that we can. We are seeking your face, Father. We are seeking your blessing. We are seeking you this week. Please help us to turn to you. Please soften our hearts. Please open our minds. Please help us to choose the Jesus bread, that we would be satisfied in you, and that we could then share you with our friends and neighbors who seem so hungry and thirsty. Please, Lord, do ask a special blessing on our children. They have work and and new jobs and school Lord, the colds seem to be going around the schools right now. Father, if you could keep them safe, keep them from getting sick, please heal up the kiddos that are homesick. It's got to be miserable. Please be with them. Please speak loudly to them. Please shine brightly for them. And Father, if we can be good stewards of these gifts that are the children in our lives, please show us how to do that, that we could love them and care for them like you do. Father, we are thankful for this wonderful place where we live. We sit here in comfort. Please help us to help others that are not in such a nice place. Please be with the people of Afghanistan, all of them. Father, I pray that you break the hearts of the Taliban, that you open their minds, that there's a revolution of kindness and love and mercy that pours out of Afghanistan that we have never seen before. Please protect those who are fearful or in hiding. Lord, I pray the same thing for Thailand and Myanmar, that you would protect and love and heal and break hearts and, and open minds, that 
love and mercy would pour out. And also ask, Father, that you be with our families, that you be with our church. Father, we are seeking to be on your path. We are seeking to be about your business. We are seeking your provision, and we are seeking your correction, that we would be your hands and feet in this world, that we would practically, physically help bring justice and provision to those around us. Please give us the strength and the courage to do that. We ask all of that in the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.